If you open your Bibles to Philippians 4, 1 through 20, just a page over from the earlier reading. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, I skipped a verse, excuse me. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, If there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. And starting with 10 through uh, 13 will be the focus of the sermon. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking you again to illumine your word through your Holy Spirit. God, bring the word to life in us throughout this week ahead and help us to reflect on it and with our families and friends that we come into contact this week. In Jesus' name, amen.
we will be referring to some in chapter 3 of this letter and, and earlier, I believe, chapter 1. Uh, it's certainly hard to understand any portion of a letter without looking to other parts of it. Uh, but I did want to focus in particularly on this idea of contentment there in the middle of chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Verses 10 and 11. So here we see Paul practicing what he earlier preached, so to speak. Six verses sooner. uh, In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And again in verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. So the first indication, we have the first indication that Paul is content and ready to rejoice in all circumstances in, chapter, in, in verse 4 when he says rejoice in the Lord always. And we will see him uh, doing that uh, in a number of verses we're going to look at throughout the Bible. Uh, we see him thankful, however, rejoicing that the Philippian church was caring for his physical needs. Looking ahead to verse uh, 14, Uh, following verse 10 there. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that at the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So we see the, the church sharing in his distress. It seems giving gifts to him, uh, sending him aid, presumably financially, and no doubt coupled with many prayers. So let us not for, forget to do that as we think of other churches in our presbytery, as we think of, of Christian missionaries throughout the world. Now in verses 17 and 18, however, we see that Paul's contentment lies not so much in the gift, but in knowing the fruit that redounds to the Philippian church from their acts of giving and sharing. His rejoicing was not so much in the sense of his need being filled, but in those blessings to the Philippian church. In verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So we see Paul already having a focus not tied to temporal and earthly concerns. He looks more eagerly for the blessings that will come to the church in Philippi. In focusing on the giver rather than the gift, Paul is also showing he does not treat that church as his provider or sustainer or the gift itself as his deliverance. In in 419, he goes on, of course, to say God supplies all needs both for the giver and the receiver. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And consider 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, where Paul writes, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it seems that a focus on godliness, being God-centered and Christ-imitating, combined with contentment, allows us to live with that proper eternal focus, seeing with eternal and spiritual eyes, rather than just eyes stuck in this time, eyes stuck in this world. It feels very much like I'm standing here holding a piece of wood, but I know that life is more than this place. Life, there is, as was discussed this morning uh, in the sermon, a spiritual battle that we are dealing with and a spiritual otherworldly focus that we must have as pilgrims here. Consider Solomon's observation in Ecclesiastes 5. And I'm just not actually reading from my Bible, but trust, it's the Bible. Uh, he who, it's the small print. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? So we see one aspect of how you could become discontent if you focus on uh, too much on worldly gain and put the love of money before the love of God. But there is an equally evil brother to the love of money, and that is the hatred of poverty. Whereas Paul summons us to live contentedly in any state, whether well-fed or hungry, whether abounding or abased. So looking at Philippians 4.12 in the main text, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Where? Everywhere. When? All of the time in any circumstance, and in all things. From Matthew Henry regarding these couple of verses here. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content, he quotes. We have here an account of Paul's learning, not that which he got at the feet of Gamaliel, but that which he got at the feet of Christ. He had learnt to be content And that was the lesson he had as much need to learn as most men, considering the hardships and sufferings with which he was exercised. He was in bonds and imprisonments and necessities often, but in all he had learnt to be content, that is to bring his mind to his condition and make the best of it. So regarding physical needs, food, clothing, shelter, Paul asks, Perhaps, what is my current condition? Am I full? Am I hungry? Have I learned to be full? Have I learned to be hungry? Have I learned to abound? Have I learned to suffer need? Now, how can he say that if God himself, in his sovereignty, brings those states, those conditions to pass in anyone's life? Seemingly not having enough, seemingly abounding with too much. How is Paul learning to be full? Or learning to be hungry. He's not creating those conditions in himself. So what does he mean? 
Paul is writing about how to live within those conditions, whether it be momentarily or for a lifetime. A lifetime on earth, let me clarify. Now, your carnal response at the worst of times may be to say, and mine too, I confess, Paul's contentment. Well, was that easy for him? Wasn't he the highest of Hebrews to say? Anyone can be content when things are going well, right? But this is Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, before his conversion. Looking back, he downplays his strengths to the point of rejecting their worldly worth. A chapter back, Philippians 3, 3-11. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. But this is Paul after his conversion. He was quite qualified and was willing to put those qualifications aside. After his conversion, 2 Corinthians 11, 21-33, But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, who is weak, and I am not weak, who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. And as if an afterthought, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. 
But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. We see Paul in the good times and in the seemingly, in an earthly sense, not so good times. What about all the other Christians who had even died in the faith? Hebrews 11, 35 through 39. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. In my worst of times, I have to stop myself and say, well, I haven't been sawn in two yet. But even so, we are content in that pain and in that death, suffering for the faith, dying for the faith. Consider the unprofitable servant. Remember in Luke 17, he's working in the field, a long day working, his master gets home and expects what? That the master's going to eat. You're going to serve me. He doesn't tell the servant, oh, you know, you've been working all day, go ahead and eat. He says, no, first you're going to feed me, and then you can go tend to your needs. Then you can go eat. 17, 9 through 10 in Luke, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, likewise you... When you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty. And death may be the Christian duty. And so we consider those Christians who have died in the faith. Not unbelievers. Death is the lowest of lows. Death is the thing to be avoided for the non-Christian. Because they either lie to themselves that nothing awaits after death Or in truth, they all plainly know the judgment and punishment that awaits. And so they run from death. In Isaiah 22, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But earlier in his letter, a couple pages back, Philippians 1, Paul's perspective on death, which I guess I'm using that as an example because it would seem to be the, the lowest of lows a person could reach on the earth in a temporal sense. Philippians 1, 21 through 26. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. See, Paul was content even with his greatest desire to go and be with the Lord, but he knew his duty compelled him to stay with that church and help them in the progress of their faith. Now, I wouldn't suspect he actually lived much longer in Rome. 
But that was his desire, and he was willing to subjugate his desire. Now, moving on to the last verse I wanted to be sure to hit upon. 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, this is the same person who six verses later was going to write, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, I think Paul sums up best where he gets this strength from. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in all these seemingly horrible temporal things, I'll add. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this isn't a sequel to the other one I did a couple years back on the world turned upside down, but it's, that's kind of terminology is especially dear to my heart. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So in application, three points. Let us be as Christ who prayed at death's door. Going a little further and falling on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So let us do our duty as unprofitable servants, as in Luke 17, and obey God, being content in his guidance and direction in the conditions he brings us to, knowing that all things work together for God's children. The second point, let us trust in God and be confident in his love for us. He is the loving Heavenly Father who knows how to give so much better gifts than our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers can impart temporal gifts. Uh, I don't want to stray. Um, The Christian father knows how to give good gifts as well, but I'm going to bet they're not going to be quite as good as the Lord's right now. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. But I also wanted to go back and read Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, 
With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He is a loving Heavenly Father that we can eagerly entrust ourselves in. And the third and final point, let's press on towards the goal, living and walking as pilgrims in a foreign land. But while we are here, let us shine as a light. Let the earth see our faith. Let the world see us trusting in God through thick and thin. And finally, uh, Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are not there yet. There's a sin in our future unless we take a wrong step in the parking lot in a minute. Don't lose faith. Turn sin over to Christ and turn away. Run to him. Run to a loving father. Let's pray. Then we'll sing in response. Father, we thank you for this word that you have really given us the greatest gift in the word, in the word which is Christ. Father, thank you for leaving your word with us, but for also sending your Holy Spirit. So, Father, help us to be sanctified and to come along our brothers and sisters in this church to assist and lift one another up. In Jesus' name, amen.